Hi, this is Chris Sorensen. Welcome to Brookville Road Community Church Podcast. If you haven't done so already, please take a moment to check out our website at brookvilleroad.cc for all the latest information about what's going on at Community Church. I hope the following message inspires you to take your next step in becoming a wholehearted follower of Jesus Christ. Enjoy. Once upon a time... Those words just, when we were little, opened up a world of make-believe and pretend and imagination. Once upon a time, took away just all of the cares and responsibilities that we had in childhood. Then one day, we turned a corner and bam, we weren't interested in once upon a time and make-believe. We were interested in what's real, what's true. And so we went on a search for meaning and truth. But then... Something interesting happened in our culture. Culture changed. And culture said, there is nothing real. There's nothing true. Everything's subjective. Everything's up for whatever. There's, there's no reality. There's no male. There's no female. Last I looked on the line, there's about 112 different genders mentioned. Up is down, down is up. Culture says nothing's true or everything's true to each person. You have your truth. I have my truth. And so I started thinking, I think we're back to once upon a time. So we're just going to pretend. We're just going to pretend that there is no right. There is no wrong. Everything is fluid. Thank you for letting me know. We are going to pretend. And when a culture looks at us, who would say that there is right and there is wrong and there is reality, and tell us, when we want your moral conviction and your opinion, we'll give it to you, there's a problem. When moral wrongs become civil rights, there's a problem. When the culture says those who have been looking into what is right and wrong and morality and you don't have a voice, there's a problem. The search for what is real and what is true is not new. It's been going on for some time. And everybody likes to think we know what is real, what is true. And so... Everybody thinks, well, I've got my truth, you've got your truth, and it's all subjective, it's, it's up for debate. We want to know what is real, what is right, what is true. However, we live in a culture that says, man, we're just filled with doubt and skepticism and relativism. It's all subjective. We live in a time where it is hard to know what's real and what's true. Who's telling the truth? And when you come to a place where you don't know what is real, what is true, and who's telling the truth, you start filling in the gaps. And you fill in the gaps with conspiracy theories and gossip and lies and further tribalism of us versus them. We all want to know what is real, what is true, who can we believe. And again, this, this is not something that's new. This has been going on since the beginning Right? This, this whole confusion and doubt, when, when man and woman were made in the garden, the enemy comes along and he says, did God really say? 
I mean, just to insert a little bit of doubt, a little bit of confusion into the moment, he couldn't argue there is no God because they've been walking with God in the garden. So let's just go ahead and bypass, is there a God? And let's jump on down to, did he really say? And twist and distort and what is true and what is real is nothing new. And yet we all want to know what is reality. And then when you get into things that are of the faith and when it comes to religion and faith, and people are easily duped. They're easily duped by false teachers and whatever the world would say because a number of people have no idea because they have never encountered the eternal living God and they don't know what he has said. And so it's easy to be led astray and to believe whatever we feel or think in the moment. And so into that kind of atmosphere, enter John. The apostle John was living in a day and an age in which there were false teachers and people who said, we know what's real. You need to have this secret knowledge and and we have it and we'll give it to you. And so John steps into the void of confusion and the apostle John says, wait a minute, we've experienced reality. We have touched it. We have seen it. We know We know what is real. And so we're going to be in the book of 1 John. So if you would, open your Bible to the book of 1 John. Uh, If you've got a a, a book that has pages, if you go all the way back to the back, the book of Revelation, and you start working your way to the left, you'll get past uh, 3 John to 2 John. You actually get to Jude, 3 John, 2 John. So it's way, way back there. Now, if you have a a device, you can just type in 1 John. You're there immediately, and you don't have the the threat of, I think people are seeing that I don't know where this is at. So we don't have that problem anymore. I used to have that when I was looking for scripture passages. We're going to be in 1 John, and we're going to be looking at what's real today. And so this is John. And so in order to help us understand who it is that we are going to be studying over the next many weeks, uh, I, I want us to kind of set who this is and what he is doing. Now, this is John. This is the disciple John, the apostle John. Disciple means learner. Apostle means teacher. This is the apostle John. This is the beloved disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is the brother of James, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Uh, Jesus had a nickname for them. Uh, they were called the sons of what? The sons of thunder. Yeah, the sons of thunder. Now, we don't know if mama was thunder or daddy was thunder, but they're the sons of thunder. But I think it goes to really who they were, who John is. Now, it's interesting. If you look over the history and you tend to look at how they kind of personify John, he's often looked at as weak or soft or even effeminate. Because this is the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's the one who laid his head on Jesus' shoulder during the upper room. And many people think he is weak, but he is not weak. John is full of authority and dogmatism. I think he was uh, really ambitious in his life as well. And the reason I say this is because when you open up the Gospels and you read about who John is, you see something very interesting. This guy, he is not... uh, inclusive, he is exclusive, and he's dogmatic. In fact, uh, there's, there's this time where they're, they're, Jesus is in this region of the Samaritans, and the Samaritans weren't receiving him, and so John says to Jesus, Jesus, should we call down fire and destroy them? Not real soft, right? Like, we are going to destroy people today. That's John. Uh, John had ambition. We learn in Luke chapter 9, uh, his 
his mama came up and said, hey, Jesus, my boys, they're good boys. When you come into your kingdom and you're ruling as king, would you put one on your left and one on your right? I don't care which is which, but I want my two boys to rule alongside you. And in Mark chapter 10, we find that later they then asked the very same thing of Jesus. We want to rule and we want to reign with you. And Jesus has this whole big conversation about who is the greatest. Not long after that, John really didn't understand all of it. He encounters this other guy who's casting out demons in Jesus' name. And he says, Jesus, I came upon this guy. He was casting out demons in your name. And I told him to shut up. He didn't really say that. He didn't say it that way. He says, knock it off because you're not part of us. And Jesus said, well, if they're not against us, they're for us. John is not somebody soft. This is somebody who is strong-headed. He understands who he is and he understands what he believes. And maybe you might think, why would God call someone like that? Someone who is exclusive, not inclusive. Somebody so dogmatic about his faith. I believe that Jesus called him because he knew that's the kind of person he could work with. Because when the spirit of God came and filled John, it took that drive into right doctrine and filled him with love. And he became the kind of man that God could use to do something powerful. And when I think about the character of John, that's the same kind of thing I think is important for ministry. I think that it's important to have right doctrine and to hold to it, but at the same time have love and grace. And if I can work those things into my own life, and I know I don't always have those things, and some of you might think, well, that guy, he, he's really boisterous, and, but I want to be winsome. I want to make sure that you know that you are loved, and you are loved by God, and you are loved by me, but I do not want to sway away from truth and reality. Now, John is teaching and preaching at a time when a number of false teachers, false prophets have come in and they're starting to distort the truth and to twist it. And at this point, John is an old man. He is the oldest living apostle at this point. He is the last one. He's writing this probably from the region of Ephesus. He's probably in Ephesus between 80 and 96 AD. And as I mentioned, he's writing this during the time that there are false teachers that are rising up and and a whole bunch of false doctrine has crept in. And I believe that this is a result, a direct result of a prophecy that the apostle Paul gave in the book of Acts. Now, Acts, we don't typically think of a place where we're going to turn and look and find prophecy, but this this is something interesting. I'm going to read it. It's not going to be on the screen behind me. I just want you to see this. So now this is the apostle Paul, and this is about 20 years before the letter we're about to read of 1 John. Paul is passing through. He wants to go to Jerusalem. He's trying to get into Jerusalem before Pentecost so that he can celebrate there. Now, on his way, he bypasses Ephesus, loves Ephesus, started the church there, set up elders there, but he's going to pass on by because he's on his way to Jerusalem. But he's so close, he's in Miletus. And so he calls up to the elders in Ephesus and says, come on down here, guys. I want to see you again. In fact, Paul knows this is probably the last time I'm ever going to see these guys that I love. And then in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 30, I want to read this. The elders from Ephesus come down. Here's what Paul says. Paul says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers or elders to care for the church of God, which he, Jesus, obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. 
And again, this is like 20 years before John starts writing this letter. And now John finds him in himself in this moment where men have come in and start to twist the truth, twist the doctrine, fierce wolves. And so somebody had to step up and somebody had to say, no, there is right and there is wrong and you're wrong. John wrote about the reality of God and the truth of who he is. The reality of God and the truth of Christianity has always been under attack ever since the beginning. The first attack on Christianity came from the Jewish religion. The Jewish religious people at the time said, okay, okay, okay. Many, the Orthodox stayed Orthodox Jews. There were others who said, all right, you can have Jesus. But to Jesus, you've got to add all of the ceremonial law, all of these, this religious ritual. You need to add Jesus to that. Well, enter the Apostle Paul, and he combats that with the book of Romans and the book of Galatians. So that was the first attack, all of this legalism. The second attack came from a group of people known as Gnostics, Gnosticism. So if you're taking notes, and I see some of you taking notes, it's G-N-O-S-T-I-C-I-S-M, just like it sounds, all right? Um, Yeah. So if you're taking notes at home as you're watching this, G-N-O is how it kind of starts. So Gnostics, Gnosticism, these, these are individuals. And John is beginning to battle the roots of this belief. Now the Gnostics were saying, and they had problems with the person of Jesus. They had problems with what the truth was and is. And the fact that that truth then should be applied to our lives in righteousness. And so they were attacking against that. So Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S. And that means to know or knowledge. And so the Gnostics said, we have secret knowledge and you're going to need that secret knowledge if you're going to be saved. We have knowledge. And so as you go through the book of 1 John, I just want to encourage you in your own study and as we're in here, when you see in John, look for how many times he says the word no. We know, we know, or the word knows or knowledge over and over again. In fact, I, I, in my study over the last couple of months, I circled how many times I came up with a total. You circle it in your Bible and you tell me how many times you see the word no come up. The word abide, uh, which is the series title I've given this, abide comes up a number of times. You can circle that. You can circle the word love, but look at the word no, because there were Gnostics who said, we know. And what they were saying is basically this. Gnosticism says everything that is material is bad. Only the spirit is good. And the way that plays itself out, somebody who was a Gnostic would say, man is good. Inherently, when we are born, we're good. Our spirit is good. And I used to believe that lie myself. In fact, when, when I was in uh, college, my very first philosophy class, I had the professor ask me, hey, Chris, are people uh, basically good or basically bad? And I didn't know God's word very well, and I thought to myself, well, I think they're basically good. At least they, they want to be good. They try to be good. But that's not true. I mean, do, do you have to teach a kid to be bad? <laughs> nope. To be good. Because we are born broken with sin. But they would say, no, no, we're, we're good. Your spirit is good. Your problem is you've been imprisoned in a physical body. And everything that is material is bad. And so in the mind of the Gnostic, they, they would say you need to get out of that through special self 
knowledge. If you have enough self-knowledge, you can find salvation. And Gnosticism is still around. Gnosticism is any belief in the mind of man where it sets itself above the word of God. And it's everywhere. I mean, all you have to do is keep listening to preachers or teachers or religions that keep focusing on man. It is all about you. I, I, me, me. Gnosticism is everywhere. Now, for me, I try in my philosophy of ministry, and even as a community church here, we try to be who we are without attacking who we're not. We don't, we don't spend a lot of time just blasting other ministries or, or ministers. Um, some of you might like that. Like, let's just talk about all of these errors that keep coming. I think if we keep talking about all of the errors that keep coming, we don't have enough time to look at the truth. I want you to know the truth. I want you to be able to discern with the power of the Holy Spirit what is right and what is wrong. So we need to spend our time on the truth so that you know. But saying that, there are falsehoods out there all over the place. And you don't have to look real hard. Something like universalism. Universalists say, everybody's going to heaven. There's a heaven, there's a God, and everybody gets to go. Which is confusing to me, because I'm not quite sure that they would say that Hitler and Mussolini and unrepentant pedophiles and murderers are there. And again, if we're like, hey, you've got your truth and I've got my truth, somebody's right and somebody's wrong. Somewhere. I mean, maybe Christians are wrong. Or maybe they're wrong. Universalist. Uh, we also have uh, this this idea of prosperity gospel, and prosperity gospel is destroying whole continents of believers right now. That Jesus has come to make you healthy and to make you wealthy and to make everything about what you feel in this moment because it's all about you. Another thing that we we find is uh, this idea of I, I'm going to make sure that I have a, a moral view of life. We call it moralistic therapeutic deism should really be moralistic therapeutic theism because deists say that God is not ever uh, engaged with the culture or people once again. A theist would say that he is. But moralistic therapeutic deism is I, I need to be a good person and it's going to help me. If I'm a good person, it's kind of this therapy for me and I believe that there's a God. But I, I don't really need to do what God wants me to do. I just need God to do what I want to do. Like when I run into a problem, it's like AAA. If I break down on the side of the road, I get a problem in my life. God's AAA. God, I need some help. Come bail me out. I've been good. You owe me. And if you don't come bail me out, you're not good, and I'm not walking with you anymore. Again, it's all about me and what I feel, and I'm going to craft this religion about me feeling good. Then you have the emerging church. And the emerging church is fairly recent. The emerging church is the the group of people, the churches that would say, well, we just need to be culturally sensitive. Because this book we've got is allegory. Just stories. It's not true. So we'll just be sensitive to everybody's feelings. And, you know, you've got your truth. I've got my truth. And we're back to pretend once again. What John is saying is there is truth. And there is a reality. But the Gnostics, the Gnostics swooped in and they had their own knowledge. But they engaged in the worst kind of indulgence in sin. Because if the body's bad, the body's just going to do what it's going to do. You need to just worry about having the right knowledge, having the right secret knowledge. And this Gnosticism that had kind of this broad category were broken down into a lot of subgroups. And one of the groups would say, okay, we, we believe in Jesus. 
And we believe that Jesus was human, but yes, he was divine for a period of time. Jesus was divine when he went to the baptism, and then that's when the Spirit came, but then the divine Jesus left at the cross. Another subgroup was saying, well, uh, Jesus didn't have a physical body. He, he was just spirit. He was just a, a phantom. And so the Gnostics were attacking the diagnosis of mankind's sin, where we tend to think, and we would love to believe, that we're all really good, and we're all trying our best, and God ought to be happy with us. And they were attacking the humanity of who Jesus is, fully man, and his divinity, fully God. Can you imagine somebody coming up to John and saying, John, that Jesus you walked with for three years, he wasn't a real person. That was just a spirit, just a phantom. You, what you saw, you weren't really seen. Once upon a time. Somebody's living in a fantasy land. And the world would like to say, you Christians are living in make-believe. But what John is declaring And what I'll join him in saying today, God is real. Now, I want us just for a moment here, before we we jump into the book, I'm going to take a little sidestep here, and we're going to talk about the purpose just for a second. Why did John write this? Now, we know there's all this false belief. Why is he writing? Well, John's just up front. And he's going to tell us. And he tells us in three different places. So if you're taking notes, you can write these references down. You can check them out later. One of the references of why John wrote this book, we'll read today in John 1.4. John says, I'm writing, we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So he writes for joy. And that's what we hope as we get through this book that we'll have a little bit of joy. And then he says in 1 John 2.1, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. So that you may not sin. He's writing this so that we will move in the direction of holiness, so that we will do right things rather than wrong things, that we have this direction that we're moving so that we may not sin. And then he says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, I write these things to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. So John writes for three reasons. He writes so that we might have joy. He writes so that we might have holiness. And he writes so that we might have the hope of eternal life. And I think what better time than right now for us to crack open the pages of this letter to find a little bit of joy amidst all the COVID to begin to push into holiness when there's a whole culture saying, do whatever you want to do and it doesn't really matter. And what better time than right now when we feel this world kind of pushing in and everything falling apart to look up and have hope and eternal life, which God has given to us through Christ. First John, let's open it up. I've talked long enough. All right. We're going to find the reality. John wants us to know what is real, what is true. Ah, I got to talk again. When, when you bump, sorry, when you bump into an eternal God, you're going to know what reality is. One moment past this life, stepping through the veil of death, you won't wonder anymore. Is there a God? Was there not a God? You will know what reality is when you bump into the eternal. And John's like, we bumped into the eternal. I'd like to introduce him to you. All right, here we go. Now I'm done. All right. Verse, verse, the first verse, first reality. That, he says, that which was from the beginning. The very first words of the very first verse, he points us to the beginning. He's saying, at the beginning, every beginning, 
God is there. Every single beginning. He points us to reality number one. God is there. God is there. God exists. There's at least three beginnings that we read in the Bible. And at each beginning, God is there. The very first beginning that we read in the Bible comes from Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the first beginning where God is seen. This is the beginning of what is material. This is the beginning of creation. And in that beginning, God, God made, God created, God is there. Now, now this is the cosmological argument to there being an existence of God. Because what we're saying is, for anything to be created, it must be created by something. That's just logical. You don't get nothing from nothing. If you have nothing, you'll always have nothing. Something must create something. So God is the uncaused cause. He is eternal. Because if you think logically and you want to kind of go in the direction of, okay, if the, something had to be made by something else, well, maybe something made God, and then something made that God, and then something had to make that God, and you would just keep going on and on and on and on endlessly, which would be ridiculous because that would mean that this whole world would be filled with creation and gods. But what God has revealed is he is the uncaused cause. He is eternal, always been there, and he is the one who made everything. Then you get over to the Gospel of John. And in the Gospel of John, again, he loves the word beginning. And so in the Gospel of John, in the opening verses, he starts out this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is the God who is eternal, who has always been. This is the beginning before the beginning of creation. And in the beginning, before creation, there was the word, and the word was a person, and the word is Jesus. And Jesus is God. He, he is part of the Godhead. What we're talking about here now is the Trinity. We're not talking about uh, Unitarianism, where, where you just have one God, they would say, well, okay, there's one God, and then there's Jesus, but he's not divine, and then you got the Holy Spirit, and but he really can't uh, make his own decisions. That would be a Unitarian view. We're not talking about modalism. Modalism is a popular view with a number of TV preachers right now. Modalism is God is one in substance, but he really ends up in this different essence at different times in history. He'll show up differently. No, no, no. What we are saying is the Trinity, the Godhead, three distinct co-eternal persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the Son is the Word who has been eternal. And now... John talks about another beginning. He says this, that which was from the beginning. Now, he's already pointed to the fact that there was a beginning uh, of Jesus uh, that goes before the beginning of creation, and that being is eternal. But here he's talking about a beginning. I believe that is John's beginning with Jesus, in the beginning of his walk with him. Just like the, the beginning you had with Jesus, when you gave your life to him, when you realized that he's the Lord and the Savior of your life, and you began to follow him, trusted him for your salvation. We call that being born again. Being born again is a phrase that Jesus used himself in John chapter 3. He's talking to this guy named Nicodemus. And he's talking about how you get in the kingdom of God. Hey, Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so when we begin to move in the direction of Christ, when he moves in our direction, I should say, should say we are born again. We have now a relationship 
to the one who was in the beginning, and that one who was in the beginning is God. And that one who was in the beginning and made creation then makes us a new creation. We have a beginning, a new life, a spirit that was dead. Now the spirit of God breathes life, and we have a beginning. He's talking about that beginning. Being a Christian is to be related to a person, and that person is God. It is the word, and he always has been. It is a relationship with him. He is the reality behind all reality, and that is the message of Scripture. There is a God, and you can know this God. There is a God, and he is real, and he wants to interact with his creation. Next verse. Reality check number two. So that which was from the beginning, then he says, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Now, who's, who, what kind of argument is he attacking or making sure that people know? He is talking to the Gnostics who said, no, 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 just a phantom, just a spirit. Jesus wasn't human. No, we heard him. We saw him. We touched him. The life was made manifest. This is the incarnation of God in Christ, the virgin birth. He was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So John doesn't say that it's just enough to believe that God is there. He then goes on to make the claim that God can be known, that God can be experienced. So this is the reality. The reality check is God has been experienced. His life has been experienced. It's not enough just to simply say, okay, yeah, 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 there's a God. We gotta answer the question. Is this God one who can be known? Or did he, he make creation, just kind of wind it all up and then walk away? And he's removed. Is he, is he nowhere to be found? He's just kind of letting things play itself out. Is he like somewhere off in these heavens that we can't even see with all of these huge telescopes that we keep making and going further and further out? Maybe he's just still a little bit further out. Or could it be that that God is closer than we thought? That he's not far away, but that he is simply in a dimension that we don't see right now, but he is interacting with his people. And this is what John is saying. That God, the eternal God, has made himself known through the person of Jesus. We saw him, we heard him, we touched him, and we are eyewitnesses. And for every believer in this room, you have the same kind of story. Have you, as you have encountered the living God and he breathed life into your soul, you have a story of transformation that he has done for you. And the world would like to say, you're living in pretend make-believe land. That's not reality. But for those of us in this room who have encountered the eternal God and been transformed by him, we know reality. Brings us to the essence of the message. Next reality check, you can experience his life too. You can experience his life too. If God is there, he's been experienced by others, then we can experience his life too. Verse three, John goes on. He says this, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. 
So this God who is real, who made himself known, isn't just making himself known to a select group of people in time, but he wants everybody to know. And John is taking this message of the reality that there is a God, he has been experienced, and he's telling his people who are reading this, and that includes us, that you can experience God as well. That's what we proclaim, that you can know God, that you have fellowship, that every one of us has this thing called fellowship. You see it right there. That word fellowship means koinonia. Koinonia is, is the Greek word, and it means fellowship, means partnership, koinonia, uh, community, common koinonia, contribution, the, the contact. All of that is koinonia, and we have this unique common fellowship and partnership when we come to Christ. What John is talking about is just this unique thing where we realize that we're a part of what God is doing because of the fellowship that we enjoy, the koinonia of the body of Christ. And see, the, the idea of fellowship, it, it's both positional and it's practical. We realize that when we, we come to Jesus, we have a, a position in him. Every one of us in this room, we're all unique. Some of you are a little more unique than others, all right? I'm in that boat too, right? We're all unique. We all have different stories, where we come from, we're, we're different personalities. But when we come to Christ, when we made him our Lord and our Savior, he, God, became our father. We got adopted into this family. And if you're a follower of Christ, you're my brother in Christ or my sister in Christ, and we have a positional fellowship, a positional koinonia. But then there's the practical fellowship. And that's what the local body of Christ does. It allows us to have this unique fellowship where we realize we're part of a family. And we realize that in families, there's dysfunction and there's issues, but we are in this together. A whole bunch of people, they want to bail on practical fellowship. They don't want to interact once again because, you know, we have all of these struggles and people hurt me and uh, the minister's a doofus and whatever it might be. But we, friends, we are going to have koinonia forever. I'm going to be with y'all for a long time. That may freak you out, but I'll be much better then. Because when we get there, we will be perfected as Christ is. That's fellowship. That's what we get to enjoy. We'll have all the time in the world to celebrate the fellowship that God has made between us. Not only is there this horizontal fellowship that we enjoy, can't think about it like the cross, you have the horizontal beam, but then you got that vertical beam. You got that relationship, that fellowship with God. So John goes on, he says this, and indeed our koinonia, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And it's amazing how the horizontal fellowship and the vertical fellowship work hand in hand. I would say if you're having struggles with others in your life right now, you best check that relationship with your heavenly father because when you get that one straightened out, you begin to look at others around you differently and John is gonna pour that on and he's gonna talk about here's how you know you're a believer. Here's how you know you're in the faith. You love the father and you love his children. That's how you'll know this koinonia, this fellowship. And you just need to know, you you don't, you don't get to be a part of the family just because you think that would be nice. You, you become part of the family because you repent of your sin and you receive Jesus Christ. That's how you get fellowship with God and get into the family of God. You, you don't get in the family of God because you think you're good. Because again, you're not. We're sinners. 
You get into the fellowship and you become a child of God when you admit the reality that you've been trying to push and pretend that's not there. I am a sinner. Thank you for coming, for being real, dying on a cross for my sins. I should have paid that price. I receive you as my savior. Thank you for rising from the dead to conquer hell, death, and the grave and to give me life. I make you my Lord. That's how you get in. That's how you're part of the family. That's how you get this fellowship. This is what John declares. When you have the son, you have the father, and you're part of the family. Well, what happens when you have that kind of fellowship? Fourth reality. Fourth reality. John 1, 1 John 1, verse 4, and he says, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Once you know that God is real, that God is there, that you can experience him, that you can have fellowship with God, you have fellowship with others, that brings joy. When you finally realize that there is a God who made you and loves you and he exists and he has moved in your direction so that you might experience him personally, that he died so that you could be saved now and forever, eternally, when he's given your spirit, when you realize that God is now able to use you for his eternal glory, that brings joy. That brings joy. Not just simply joy and happiness so that you could be happy and make this whole thing about you, but so that you would once again realize this has never been about me. It has always been about the creator of this universe, who, am I, who I am called to then serve. I talk to some people here, and God's using them, and they'll tell me about how God is using them, and they can't help but bounce. I just watch them. I mean, they're just so excited at the kinds of things that God is doing in their life. It's a joy that it just kind of goes beyond feelings. It's not happiness. Joy is gladness in spite of circumstances. It doesn't mean that when we come to Christ, like, okay, everything's going to be wonderful and there's no problems, there's no difficulty. No, no, we're going to have a ton of that. In fact, you might even have more problems when you come to Christ, especially in our culture and where we're going. It is that deep down joy that nobody can take away that my God loves me and I love him and I am here to serve him. And there is a joy that nobody can take away. Nobody can legislate away. I have joy because I'm living in reality. There is a God. He can be experienced. You can experience him too. That brings joy and God can use us for his eternal work. Anyway, I just think that potentially, potentially, even today, that God could touch somebody's heart in this room or somebody who's listening. I'm just, I don't want to be seen. I want him to be seen. I want you to know him and to think that God could use his word in a moment like this. That is joy. I think we just need our joy restored. I know I need mine restored because life just kind of beats you over the head time and time again. Like, here's a problem. Oh, you want another problem? Here's another problem. And to get to that place where we look up once again in spite of all of our circumstances, in spite of what's going on around us, and we have joy with an upward look. I've heard it said before that if you ask somebody who's been a Christian for a long time, or you tell them rather, Jesus is coming, they want to debate your eschatology. They want to debate your idea about end times. But if you say to a new believer, Jesus is coming, they look up. I think we need that upward look kind of just restored in our hearts. We need to be expectant of the experience of God among us. Because friends, this is reality. God is there. And in fact, God is 
here. And some of you hadn't stopped to know that. But he's here. This God has been experienced. And you can experience him too. And that brings joy. Let's pray. Father, I just recognize that in our world and in our lives, each of us, my friends in this room, friends that are watching, this life is difficult and challenging and there are problems. And it would be tempting to just kind of create a world of make-believe to push away against all that we see and all that is going on around us. But you have called us to what is real, to know the truth, to know the one true God. And so God, once again, we just trust and know you're there, you're here, you can be experienced. And not just simply experienced so that we might feel good, but experienced so that we might live the kind of life that brings you, the one who made us and created us for your glory, can bring you joy. And so today, in our hearts, in our lives, thank you for the reality of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the reality of your word that you have given to us, not to take away our fun, not to to harm us, but to put boundaries, to love us so that we might continue to walk in righteousness and holiness, to be filled by your spirit and walk in your ways. We love you. Restore our joy on this day, we pray. In your name, amen. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love for you to join us at one of our weekend worship services. For service times and information about BRCC, be sure to check out brookvillroad.cc. God bless you.